welcome to the Long Take Review, a film podcast with one eye always on the Oscar race. I'm your host, Jensen Chakai Bankard, and I'm here with two boys, but really they're more like herons. First, he reeks of death. It's Greg Cast. How's it going, Greg? This was my world. It was beautiful and messy and tragic and silly. It cannot last. Oh, that's strangely profound to start us off. <laughs> uh, and he'll be our guide, but he's always a liar. It's P.T. McNiff. How's it going, P.T.? He read too many books and he slowly went insane. It's going well, Jen. How are you? <laughs> I feel like that describes all of our collective experiences in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> so we are, I'm great. Thank you. Uh, we are here today to review The Boy and the Heron the newest animated fantasy film by legendary director Hayao Miyazaki. Very highly anticipated uh, for me. I don't want to speak for everybody else. The story follows a young boy who moves to a mysterious old estate after the death of his mother during World War II. It's playing in theaters now, and you can choose to see it with a star-studded English dub, like I did, or with the original Japanese language subtitles, as I believe Greg and PT also did. They're giving thumbs up, so I believe that's correct. If you are listening to us for the first time, we'll have a spoiler-free section designed for those who have not yet seen the film. And then with a very clear warning, we will shift into spoiler mode for the rest of the show. PT, if fine folks listening want to hear more, what can they do? Well, they can uh, subscribe to the show on any and all of their uh, podcast catching uh, apps or or websites, uh, Apple uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Overcast. Uh, I think there's there's YouTube podcasts. Maybe I don't know. There's all kinds of podcasts. Go go look for us wherever you get your pods. Uh, subscribe. Uh, leave a, a rating. Uh, maybe write up a little review if uh, uh, if you want to. And uh, it's it's course evaluation season, so we're ready ready to get ratings and reviews. Uh, and uh, you can also uh, follow us on the, uh, the the home base of Jen Substack, the longtake.substack.com, uh, or on uh, Instagram and Threads at the Long Take Review. Uh, you can get updates there about our, our activities. Thanks, BT. I, I don't don't speak for me. I feel like I'm not ready for course evaluations. <laughs> I barely <laughs> I've barely finished grading all my papers for the semester. So we are just about ready to get to our review of The Boy and the Heron. But first, we need to do what I, I can't promise it will be quick movie news update. Just in off the wire, it's your Hollywood news. All right. So I said, I don't know if it's going to be quick because, sorry, I'm still jamming to the, <laughs> the tunes. Um the Zoot Suit Riot tunes. Uh, okay, so Golden Globe nominations came out bright and early this morning. I woke up to it flooding my feed. We should note, Jen, we're recording oh. on Monday, December 11th. So that was the day the nominations came out. Thank you. That's good. Yeah, because we're this episode is probably going to drop a, a week from now. So, you know, hopefully the takes will stay fresh <laughs> between now and then. As, as far as I know, nothing major, like no other awards are coming out in the next week. But who knows? Um Anyway, I thought, yeah, Greg's shaking his head, so I guess that means I'm right. What are some of our big takeaways? We said we'd limit ourselves to three takes from these nominations. I think, yeah, were these surprising to you? Were these typical Golden Globes nominations? What do you think? 
Uh, I'll start by saying, like, hey, the Golden Globes still exist. There's your first surprise. Uh, They're still around. They are back from the dead. Uh, I'm not an expert on this, but as I understand it, they are now kind of an entirely different voting body that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association no longer exists or exists out independently of the Golden Globes. And that this is now being wholly owned and operated by Dick Clark Productions um, to eventually be broadcast on CBS. And here's my good news of the day on Paramount Plus. So those of us who don't have terrestrial television will also have the chance to see it, uh, abuse those free trial subscriptions at the appropriate moment to to have access. So yet, all that being said, I would say these felt very much like traditional Golden Globe nominations. We were already joking a little bit that there are a few moves here that feel like they are purely like, let's get famous people in the room. They have expanded a bunch of categories to six, seemingly just to get a sixth celebrity uh, into the room for each category uh, and added two categories of note. And I will use that as my transition into my first of my three takes from this WTF box office achievement. Uh, This category (laughs) makes no sense in my book. If you, uh, make a movie that makes a ton of money. The reward is a ton of money and you don't really need to also have an award tell you that you got a ton of money. Um, If you look at the list, uh, it's a really weird set of movies. Does one of you have it up right now? I, I I'm close to it. Hold on. I believe it was, it was, it was, it was Barbie guardians, of the galaxy volume three, John wick chapter four, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, Oppenheimer, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, the Super Mario Brothers movie, and Taylor Swift, The Eras Tour. Many movies we all sort of link together in our minds. Yes. So if you look at that list to me, I would say all the ones there that are worth anything are probably nominated in another category. With apologies to the divine Miss Swift, who that's just a play to get Taylor Swift at your award ceremony. No, right. Is it really an achievement to have put cameras at your insanely popular concert and then put the movie those captured into theaters? Um, And if you look at the box office, that is not even like the top grossing movies. They skipped around the list a bunch. Now, uh, this podcast does not endorse Sound of Free. It's not. It's not like the top eight at all. what Um, What is it supposed to be? Who knows? And I was going to say, this podcast does not endorse Sound of Freedom. But if your award is called Box Office Achievement, I'm sorry. That's the Box Office Achievement of the Year to figure out a weird way to manipulate your audience to pay it forward and get them to make your movie, you know, really financially successful. That's like an actual innovation in the box office that, you know will be mimicked in the future to probably lesser success. Um, So again, my first take WTF box office achievement. This is just a mess of a category. I I will note it is technically the category is cinematic and box office achievement. So I think (laughs) the cinematic and makes it be like, it's a movie we liked too. So it made a bunch of money and we liked it, which is their workaround for, Elemental and Sound of Freedom and other things that would be up there in the in the numbers. 
but aren't necessarily there. I mean, this just feels like I, I also I had to scroll because I had looked up who owns the Globes now. Um, but yeah, the Hollywood Foreign Press has dissolved. And this has been acquired by a billionaire's private equity firm named Todd Bowley, as well as Penske Media, who publishes Variety and The Hollywood Reporter. So totally cool and chill organizations that I'm sure will never create any problems uh, in running this show. But uh, but not the not the group that was definitely uh, causing problems running the show. So uh, so yeah. I feel like the people running it now remembered when the Oscars were going to do a, a most popular award or best popular movie. And, and then there was pushback and, and that sort of collapsed. And they were like, well, why not try it and just put it out there? Um, but I'm with Greg because it feels like the the movies that I'm happy to see on that list that aren't nominated somewhere else would have been better served by a best stunt and choreography category. So then you mm-hmm. could have gotten John Wick, Mission Impossible, and even Taylor Swift, if you count the choreography on the show, <laughs> which I'm assuming is 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 excellent. So, uh, you know, put that category in instead and whatever, junk this one, which I also did not realize was actually going to be a thing that happens. So uh, my, let's see, um, I, well, I'm going to go first with uh, the one that's the, because uh, I, I don't want to hold off in case someone else takes it because I want to take it, um, but it's the one that's most on brand for this episode. I was super pumped to see that uh, Joe Hisaishi um, got uh, a nomination for The Boy and the Heron score for Best Original Score. Uh, he's never been nominated. This is his first um, Western American award that he's been nominated for. He has scored every Miyazaki movie since uh, Nausicaa um, of the et cetera, et cetera, um, in 1984. Valley of the Wind. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I couldn't remember the order and I didn't want to try. So, uh, so yeah, he's been doing scoring all of Miyazaki's movies as well as other movies. So uh, great to see him recognized and, and to foreshadow a, a future category on this episode. I hope this is a portend that he will also be recognized uh, at the Academy this year. My shout out is Past Lives is here to stay. Mm-hmm. I feel like it got so many more nominations than people ex- were expecting. In particular, I think the most surprising one was Celine Song made it into Best Director, which I feel like throws my predictions totally into chaos now in a good way uh, because I'm happy to see her there. But um, I feel like I think it got like five or six nominations here. I want to say Greta Lee got in a screenplay, Celine Song for director, got best drama. I'm forgetting, probably forgetting one because um, then that would be five probably. But uh, yeah, I feel like people now cannot say that people have forgotten about past lives. It's clear that that mm-hmm. people have seen it. They love it. It's here. And the thing is like past lives feels like a not, very globesy stereotypically globesy pick to me you know what i mean so that to me makes it even more compelling that it's like it's a genuine pick as opposed to like because past lives doesn't have any super iconic famous people in it um so it's not it's not a ploy to get them at the show which which is you know the most cynical reading of golden globes are, um nominations are that it's just to get famous people in the room so yeah i, I that's the thing i'm most happy about disrespect for Greta Lee and her place uh, among the morning show cast, uh, mm. which also got nominated on the TV side. So they were just trying to make sure Greta Lee doesn't skip. Uh, it also yeah, got nominated I, for best um, non-English language movie. Oh uh, yeah. That I was, that's a little weird, but I guess it probably has as much English as anatomy of a fall, which is also 
nominated in that category. So that doesn't help with the Academy Awards, but uh, good for them. Another Put another one on the board for Past Lives. I think Minari ended up in this category, the, even though it's American production that takes place in the United States. So I got a little bit of those vibes of like, oh, really? Like, But I guess if they're used, the category uses the word language, then I feel like it opens it up more. Mm. as opposed to international feature, which would indicate like it has to come from a, a different country. Just to pile on Jen, don't forget that Greta Lee is also a cast member on in Across the Spider-Verse, another nominated right. film. So she's going to hop table to table while you're saying she's not famous. Completely valid. Your well, point no, was accurate, just, okay. but we're just picking on you. <laughs> all right, all right. I want her to become uh, famous. But, yeah. But she's not uh, a household so, uh, name. Like, like Matt Damon is getting nominated because he's Matt Damon. All right, slow your roll. So you already stole one of mine. So I will I will call this a steal. I had down Celine's song as one of my takes because I was very excited to see her name on this list. If I were wearing the uh, hoodie of my other podcast, she is a very, uh, she cut her teeth on the Wheel of Time television show. So she's become very important to my life in that podcast. And so over here, it's really nice to see that she got pulled along. Um, I will be very interesting when we get to the long take review pre-Christmas. It's too early, but we're doing it anyway. Oscar picks to see if we think she can crack the five spots for director of the Oscars. But I found that very encouraging. So I'll give you credit for that. Since uh, you stole the one I really wanted to talk about, then I will take the one you almost stole in your offhanded cynicism, which is Air. Air lives. I think literally everybody had forgotten about air. And, um, you know, as we look at past lives, past lives starts to feel a little bit like a coda story, early kind of buzzy premiere. And then it just kind of chipped away, chugged away all summer in everybody's digital streams. I know a lot of people rented it. I don't think it's hit a free streamer yet, but I'm sure it would do big business when it does. That's the narrative. It's, it's starting to feel like, and that is, what probably air should have done but air hit amazon prime and nobody cared and no i i have not heard anybody mention that in weeks and weeks and weeks uh so i entirely agree but air getting acting nominations and a best film nomination a best uh comedy it's in the comedy side i believe right um is just crazy. I will give credit to Amanda Dobbins on Big Picture, who immediately pointed out, if you're nominating somebody from that movie, it needs to be Viola Davis. It doesn't need to be Matt Damon. Um, and so it is still a Globes, Golden Globes pick. So uh, I'll take air somehow staying afloat. Uh, there's a weird metaphor in there somewhere uh, as <laughs> as my They're just date. doing it. <laughs> Make it happen. Uh, I, I will say because Past Lives is A24 and A24 just announced a deal with Max, presumably Past Lives will come out on Max at some point. I can't, in a quick Google while Greg was talking, I couldn't find when that officially starts. Um, but it would be great, I think, for Past Lives if it hit Max in the next you know few weeks before, mm. uh, before we get to the, the voting. Because I think otherwise it might end up at Paramount Plus, which is fine, but I don't think gets as much buzz as things on, uh, on Max do. So um, I, I will, I will pivot from uh, the air, that air discussion and the fact that Matt Damon got a nomination for 2023, but it wasn't for Oppenheimer uh, and uh, pivot into 
the uh, best supporting actor category, which feels like of all the categories that we have, that is pretty close to being like locked in. This is the final six of uh, of the category. Like the other categories, like oh, is Celine Song really going to be the number six person director, or other people going to maybe jostle? But the supporting actor category looks pretty pretty solid at this point. Um, again, for those who may have uh, forgotten, there's uh, lead lead actor and actress are divided drama and and uh, musical or comedy. But supporting roles, both in uh, this is both in television and in movies, are just sort of across the board. So there's no there aren't two categories for supporting actor, uh, and it's um, Willem Dafoe in Poor Things, Robert De Niro, Killers of the Flower Moon. Robert Downey Jr., Oppenheimer, Ryan Gosling, Barbie, Charles Melton, May-December, and Mark Ruffalo for Poor Things. So that does feel like the the sort of pieces have been aligning all the other kind of folks like Matt Damon maybe in Oppenheimer uh, or Dominic Sessa in The Holdovers. Like they've sort of been kind of uh, put away. Uh, and these are the people. And it's the question would be, who doesn't make it out of this group? Uh, and I kind of feel like right now it's between you know, will there only be one Poor Things actor nominated or will Ryan Gosling not make, will the Barbie love not get him into uh, the final five? So I would say, and granted, Poor Things just premiered, right? So this could change very rapidly once more people, like once more people see the movie. But it feels like in the critical conversation, Poor Things has, has is still very strong contender, but is not the front runner it was when it came out of. Great question. I don't yeah, tell you right. You can look. We don't. I will we look don't. That up. I was a tell you right. I knew. Yeah, I knew it was one of the two. Um, That's my guess. Yeah. When I, <laughs> but I feel like people were like, "Wow, poor things." Yes, poor things. Front runner, kind of like you know, right behind Oppenheimer potentially. Or people were really kind of thinking, "Oh, could it be?" And I feel like now it's sort of like, "Oh, maybe it's still in the running, but is not kind of in the head of the pack." So for that reason, I think I had originally had Ruffalo and Defoe in as like the traditional double nomination from the same movie in this category. But I feel like Barbie's still going really strong, getting nominations left and right and all these sort of precursors. And then because of that, I would say it's to me, it's more likely Ryan Gosling stays in and then probably Willem Dafoe is out because people seem much more enamored with Ruffalo. Like people like both of the performances, but people are more likely to mention Ruffalo as a standout. The only thing I'll say is Defoe feels the most due out of the three of them. Oh, terrible. He's been nominated a bunch. Mm. But I, I think based on performances alone, that what you just said all makes sense to me. I'm just going to throw this out there. You you all follow the the odds makers better than I do. Are we sure De Niro's a lock? Because De Niro has the feel of this movie kind of underperformed a little. It is beloved and there's a lot of nominations for it. But I think there's easily a way to say like, yeah, but every he knows he's beloved. He's had his his accolades. Uh, we maybe don't need to throw him a nomination. Am I crazy, or you think he's definitely in? You're not crazy, um, but uh, you know, I, I guess I thought it was more likely that uh, that you know, you know, one movie wouldn't get two nominations, uh, or the sort of more like you know populist one would uh, would get like that he might just sort of float along on uh, a Killers of the Flower Moon Tide. But, you know, I, I also feel like he, he and Leo are spending their 
uh, post-strike campaigning time pushing for Lily Gladstone more than for themselves, which is somewhat self-serving as well to look like they're selfless elder statesmen uh, bringing up a a, a new, uh, an up-and-coming star. But yeah, it, you're right. It, it's possible. But, you know, I don't know in looking at, you know, briefly, quickly, looking at the odds makers, there's no sort of like clear when De Niro isn't on the list. Um, it either is, it's Gosling and it's the two poor things people, uh, or it's sort of a, a scattering of folks who have been in the discussion, but feel like they've fallen off. Coleman Domingo for the color purple, Sterling K. Brown in American fiction. Uh, but, you know, there's no one sort of <laughs> Glenn Howerton for Blackberry. Some guy on Gold Derby is still really um, ringing the bell for Blackberry. But uh, yeah, I don't know if there's like a a clear sort of consensus on who that would be. Um, so my guess is that De Niro has gone from like one of two locks to being somewhere around fourth or fifth, but we'll probably still get in to the, to the um, you know, get a nomination. He also sort of got a little bump, I think, from the Gothams because they, I think it was the Gothams, he, they cut off his speech. Because he was getting too political. Did you either of you hear about this? I, no. I did. Uh, I didn't hear the speech or anything, but I did hear. I didn't hear the speech either. Yeah, I just saw the news, the sort of the press cycle around it. Um, so if people are really like, yeah, Robert De Niro, you speak your mind, right? Don't let the man get you down. Then then maybe he gets a little bit of bump. But I, I, I do agree, Greg, that like it might be the thing we're not seeing. That mm. makes sense to me. It's like the thing everyone assumes is a lock. And then on nomination morning, we're like, wait, what? Where's Robert De Niro? Um, but I think it also is highly dependent on how big a day Killers has in general. Right. Well, if, like, and I still it, remain very high on Killers. I want Killers to do much better than it's kind of already cooling reputation uh, grants you. Um, but I do wonder if there's a little bit of old Academy, new Academy to it that Killers feels very old Academy. Lily Gladstone accepted. It's Leo, it's De Niro, it's Scorsese. That's like the old we vote for Green Book Academy's pick versus Poor Thing seems like the edgier, cooler, we voted for Parasite Academy's pick. And so the Academy has gotten younger and more diverse as the years have progressed since then. But, you know, maybe maybe there's still enough of the old guard left. But uh, Jen, I think it's your turn for a take. So I feel like zone of interest is in a little bit of trouble after this because it did make it into best drama, but it missed in a bunch of key places. Otherwise it didn't get in director. Right. So now I'm like, Oh, maybe I'm assuming Jonathan Glazer is not, it's not making it in director. Um, and then I think it missed screenplay as well which are pretty big categories. And so, and where, whereas on the other hand, anatomy of fall had a big day at the globes where it's like, it consistently got in a bunch of categories. And so I'd say like, maybe it's going to be the like one international feature that was not actually nominated for an international feature <laughs> <laughs> that makes it into best picture, which would make it a very weird year. But um, I can definitely see that happening. And I don't know if it's just cause like people are, don't want to see it. Because they know what it's about. Because I feel like everyone I've heard who has seen it is raving about it, but they're like, also, it was, a, it like destroyed me. And it's a very hard 
thing to watch. And so I feel like if that that gets around as its reputation, maybe it's one of those things where like not enough people end up seeing it and then it doesn't kind of break into the Oscars. Yeah, and the screenplay is an interesting one. That's the that's the one category that's the opposite of how I usually think of the Globe to Oscar translation where it's like, well, there's so many people nominated in the Globes because there's, you know, between picture and leading actor and actress because there's the division of drama and musical comedy. Screenplay doesn't divide adapted and original. It's just six screenplay noms. So it's possible with when it expands to 10, zone of interest could still be in the conversation. But I think it's like otherwise, you know, that's, it's looking less and less likely. Like it's not really sort of holding on. Uh, I think it's been getting a, a little bit of recognition in critics uh, you know, but mostly as the international movie, not sort of in in the other categories, because um, those have also been coming out in the last you know week, week or ten days, um, which is partially I think where there's maybe been some boosting of Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, not to drag us back there, but uh, that there's been you know there's been a little resurgence in some areas, but like Zone of Interest sort of locked in its position as maybe just an international movie. Um, although Jonathan Glazer has gotten director, you know, accolades from a few of the critics awards, but having said all that critics awards are not the best bellwether for Academy success. Sneaking in a half a take, uh, cause we don't talk about television. Harrison Ford, uh, had his two co- co-stars, his 1923 co-star and his shrinking co-star get nominated and he got overlooked. I kind of thought he might get in for shrinking, but uh, I'm not going to say the words you think I'm going to say. I'm not going to do it. You're not going to play that sound. No. Uh, uh. (laughs) Uh, But my real take will be, I think the holdovers is showing weakness too. Um, Mm, That pain got lost out, left out of the director's race and the, well, not, he didn't write the screenplay, but the screenplay also got left off the list. Um, there was a weird moment in early November where it was like, this is just the feel good one that everybody's going to flock to. I do think it's done pretty well on box office. I saw it hit home, uh, home rental right for Thanksgiving and thought that was such a good call. But I then didn't hear a lot of my family and friends say they watched it over the last couple weeks. So I, I think it's losing a little of its luster and um, I still have strong hopes for divine uh, in that category, which I don't think I get to predict that category when we do predictions uh, coming up. But uh, I, I have hopes for her. I am sure Giamatti will still pull a nomination, but I think holdovers is starting to feel like you can have a whole bunch of nominations, but you might go home empty handed. Or it will, it might be holdovers. Congratulations. You got six or seven nominations. We're consolidating our support into, uh, Davine, uh, Jen, is that how we have? Yes. I recently learned we've been saying it wrong. We talked about that on our, uh, uh, the Netflix episode. Um, which Greg, you were not on, and you might not have had a chance to hear it. Just dropped, um, but yeah, D- uh, Davine uh, Joy Randolph might just be the person where it's like we're all consolidating there in the same way that maybe Killers of the Flower Moon support is all just going to go to actress for Lily Gladstone, and it'll be like, yep, that's check that box, we're done. Um, but I think that's a great point. I had that on my list too of you know where are the holdovers, and I'll you know um, I'll, I'll I'll go from that to the other sort of. Uh, you know, is it is it time to pronounce uh, "Dead on Arrival" once again? 
the color purple did get one nomination. Uh, where was it? Was it uh, actress? Um, yeah. A- uh, actor, female actor in a sporting role, which again, uh, you know, Danielle Brooks, uh, which, which she's been in the conversation for a long time and that's good, but there's be- it's best, pi- you know, musical or comedy in both lead actress and also in best picture for a big musical to, to not be able to show up there when, when it has that path. I don't know. Uh, again, maybe it's because it hasn't been seen by that many people. It only started the critic screenings, uh, you know, in the last few weeks. Uh, and again, not super clear I, uh, to me, at least who is uh, voting on this uh, or who's making these choices. Uh, do they have uh, any extra access that, that regular critics don't, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that seems a little, a little, that's going to hurt their chances um, for, for all the other people in the color purple um, at both above and below the line who are potentially going to um, yeah, going think they were going to have a chance. Uh, and to, since uh, it's not a TV one, but I don't think it's an important one. Uh, I'm going to say that uh, they, they seem to have avoided a Diane Warren uh, random ass song. Um, but instead the random ass song is from Bruce Springsteen. Uh, who is not a uh, Academy Award list human being? He did get one for Streets of Philadelphia um, back in the day. So, uh, so hopefully that doesn't translate into the actual uh, the actual Academy Awards. But, um, but yeah, what is this movie? What is this song? Who has ever heard of it? Um, but I guess good <laughs> but for the boss. all three Barbie songs got in. Yep, which yeah. I was like very happy about, but then also was like, but what does this mean? for the Oscars like does this mean that two of them could get into the Oscars now because it's like all three of them are here um is this just laziness on the part of the Golden Globes um but they you know they picked I'm just Ken and Peaches which I've been yes. asking for since I've seen both of those movies and so you know I can't really complain that much but I feel like maybe maybe Oscars is still gonna Oscar right and they still go with the Billie Eilish song only and then Globes is just trying to have a good time by picking all three of them <laughs> They'll have Matt Damon uh, and Ben Affleck come out and introduce it because they're there for air so that they can introduce the song off between I'm just Ken and Peaches. Right, right. Um, all right. I think we did a good job and we will, you know, we can get more into this. We are planning to record hopefully on Wednesday uh, predictions check in where, you know, we take all the information, including the Golden Globes nominations into uh, um, consideration to figure out who we think is going to get an Oscar nomination. So you can look forward to that after you've listened to this episode. Uh, so I do want to get to the boy and the heron. Let's start with our short takes. Uh, and, it, you know, I put in here, if you want to talk about your relationship to other Miyazaki films, have you seen a lot of them? Are you a fan? Or are you just kind of new to, to his work? And then sort of go into what you thought of the boy and the heron. That'd be a great way to kick us off. Uh, sorry, I was still looking up. She came to me. This is nuts. Uh, never heard of this uh, movie, and it. Sorry. Uh, because you're like, um, I'm probably gonna need to see this now. Right, like if it can be so. Uh, Rebecca Miller is the director, who is the spouse of Daniel Day Lewis. Uh, but I, with apologies, have never heard of her independent of that. And Anne Hathaway, who's starring in a different random movie that's out right now that nobody's talking about, Eileen. So what's Anne Hathaway doing? What's going on? Uh, that, all right. that was so, a Sundance uh, Buzz movie, wasn't it? Eileen. Eileen was one of those Sundance yeah. movies that was trying to generate yeah. buzz and kind of didn't. But now it's yeah. like still coming out like, what about Eileen? 
Yeah. Hey, I gotta come on, Eileen. Uh, <laughs> there it is. Uh, <laughs> all right. And for that one. Pause to cut all of that nonsense out. <laughs> So my short take on the boy and the heron. Well, I'm I'm going to go first and get me out of the way. So I'm going to, this is a safe space and I'm going to be completely honest. I'm not a Miyazaki guy. I respect it. I have seen the majority of them, but I will say the actual truth is that I usually leave them going, why does everybody love these so much? Um, and I want to just emphasize the problem is me. It's not anybody else, and it's not the quality of the film. I think there's just something. Um, I I think I was raised too much on Disney, and so I want kind of stronger plot and uh, things like that in my animated movie. And I would say um, this is. I'm just gonna burn all these bridges and then uh, pretend I have technical issues and hang up. Um, I will say there's a quality of Miyazaki movies that are a little bit of vibe movies, right? That it's really not like, what is this kid's journey through these places? You're supposed to just enjoy the majesty of the, the, the settings, the quality of the animation, the inventiveness of the creatures. And those don't always land well with me. I I respect it again, but I'm not always there. So all that being said, um, Boy in the Heron is my favorite of his movies I think I've watched. And uh, part of that may just be that it's the only one I've ever seen in the theater too, which means I was a little more locked into it and locked into the vibes as opposed to at home. My kids are screaming at me. They're a little afraid of some of the creatures on screen. They love others of the creatures on screen. And so I think being a little more locked into it helped me really appreciate it. And um, I thought the uh, no question, the art was incredible. Uh, and a couple of the different sequences, which I won't get into specifics till we're in spoilers were just really inventive and really spoke to me. Then there were other sequences where I was like, yeah, I don't understand what, what the deal is here. And uh, I'll, I'll name names and birds later. Um, but uh, the whole on the whole, this would be uh, generally a recommend for me. And I think this is a, a really good and wonderful Miyazaki film, even if he is not my particular favorite cup of tea. Uh, but Greg, brave. Uh, I, I, I hope that while you were speaking, you did not clock how angry Jen was uh, when uh, when you said one or two of the things that you I'm, said. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. What what happened in your room? Was there like a small tornado or something? It looks like all your Funko Pops have had their heads ripped off. And such. Uh, yeah. Um, so I... Uh, my my history with Miyazaki is unfortunately shorter than it should be. He was always someone that was like on my radar and everyone was always like, he's incredible and you're going to love him. But I really only started digging into the movies like in the last like five years. Uh, and I was going very sort of slowly. I believe the uh, it wasn't the first one that I saw, but like I Jen, uh, I, I floated. I think we, we you planned it. Uh, and I kind of glommed onto it. We went to see um, my neighbor Totoro at the at the New Beverly. So um, that one in Spirited Away, 
uh, I did get to see for the first time in uh, in a theater, which I, I do think helps the experience because you are locked in. And it's uh, I think everything Greg said is is true, but that's also kind of why I like them. I think that Miyazaki movies speak to the same part of my brain and my heart that like weird 70s art prog rock concept albums do where it's like none of this makes sense like if you are just sort of like what is the plot of this it's like this is nonsense this is a you know and it's all you know there's many old classic fables nursery rhymes anything that's sort of children's stories that could be co-opted by hippies uh, or the counterculture movement uh, because it makes a lot of sense when you're on mind-altering drugs Uh, that's that's the, that's the same pocket. That's the same area. And that, uh, you know, that does work for me and the vibes of it. Uh, the, uh, the podcast blank check, which does like director of filmographies did Miyazaki uh, a few years ago. And I can't remember who it was, but one of their guests who came on said that they uh, always thought of movies as either being puzzles or dreams. And that uh, most movies are puzzles in some way where you're trying to figure out what happened or what's going to happen or who did what or how are they going to figure this out and, and get together or solve the crime or whatever. Uh, and uh, but Miyazaki ones are like the purest dream ones where it's the most like uh, a dreamscape. And so, you know, I, I, I do connect with that. I do enjoy that. I, maybe it was something about this is the first new one that I have gone to see because it's the first one that's come out since I started watching his movies. Uh, and the first, uh, you know, that I saw it at a late night screening that the movie started probably about 11. Um, but I was totally locked in. I thought this was wonderful. I had an amazing time. Uh, I know there's definitely some moments where I think maybe like Greg, I was just like, what are we doing? Or like, why is this happening? But it didn't like bother me. Uh, and I think the way everything comes together no spoilers, but just the way the story culminates in its final 15 or 20 minutes is uh, wonderful and emotional. And uh, what a, what a, what a capstone, if this is a capstone for Miyazaki's career. So uh, I, I do strongly recommend it. We'll get to the recommendation algorithm about question marks about who might like it. Um, But if you like Miyazaki at all, I think that you would like this movie. Where do I start? Uh, So First, First of, of all, all, how dare you, Greg? Jen, come on. <laughs> well, I'm trying. I'm trying to. I was trying to formulate a less hostile way of saying that um, because I appreciate you and I, I want to understand your perspective of total ignorance. Um, but <laughs> uh, the thing I'll point out is that you know it's good that you're getting. It sounds like you're getting on the Miyazaki train now, Greg, because uh, Miyazaki is very important to Dave Filoni who is, mm. is now taking over the Star Wars. So I think he has influenced so many other artists and is so important, especially in terms of the, the fantasy genre. But I think for me, it, he goes, it goes back. So I started watching Miyazaki films in college. Uh, so actually my husband, John and I, the first movie we ever watched together was princess Mononoke. And that was my first Miyazaki movie that I ever watched. And he was like a gas that I'd never seen a Miyazaki movie. <laughs> And so like sat me down and was like, okay, we got to watch Princess Mononoke. And so I think we watched it like on his computer or something like that. And, um, you know, we we wouldn't start dating until like 10 years later. Uh, But that was, you know, but in terms of my movie taste and kind of my relationship with Miyazaki, it all it all kind of goes back 
there, I love the whimsy of Miyazaki, and I love that in the same breath, it could be really cute and also terrifying. That's a vibe that I, I really like. And in terms of The Boy and the Heron, I was not disappointed at all. I love this movie. I do feel like if I'm looking at Miyazaki's entire filmography, this one is a little less accessible than some of the other ones so I'm, and i'm worried if that's going to be a barrier to entry for some people um in terms of like you know what pt was describing in terms of like the sort of surrealism and you kind of have to like go with it and let it wash over you sometimes and not overthink sort of like what's happening and why and and what when and all that sort of stuff i think this doubles down on that a little bit but i also feel like if you are a fan of miyazaki and you're familiar with a lot of his work it's so easy to see themes and threads and imagery and iconography that draws from so many of his past films. And they're all kind of like very beautifully converging in this movie um, in a way that like occasionally was distracting to me because I was like, oh, there's Castle in the Sky. Oh, there's my neighbor Totoro. Oh, like, <laughs> um, but it was very satisfying as a fan of his work. Um, and so, yeah, so I, w I, I was very happy coming out of it i did think it was like i need to talk about just like the basic what happened with you with both of you just to make sure i'm on the right page in terms of like what, what i saw as i think you do with some uh, other miyazaki movies but um whereas like you know if you think about my neighbor totoro the plot of that is like pretty grounded and straightforward and then it's like very clear what's being what fantasy elements are sort of being mixed into that whereas this movie it's sort of like at certain points, I was like, wait, like, where are we? Like, what is happening? <laughs> in, a, in a way that I found enjoyable. And, and I, you know, I often appreciate films that don't hold my hand at all. But yeah, in, in terms of like, I don't know. And maybe this is us moving into recommendation algorithm. So I'm not sure I recommend this as like someone's first Miyazaki movie, mm. if that makes sense. I think they will be like, what? What? <laughs> Um, as opposed to seeing it as a culmination of a lot of his past work. But um, do you think that because you know all the past work, because I've only seen the Miyazaki movies. I've seen, I think almost all of them. I haven't seen the wind rises yet, um, but I think I've seen the rest of them, but I've only seen all of them once. So I did it. Like I kind of got like vibes, but the whole thing again, we were saying the whole thing is vibes, but I didn't necessarily point out like, oh, that's a direct reference to mm -hmm. something else. So do you think that it feels like a culmination of all the other movies because you know all the other movies well? Uh, and so like, it could know, be. Is that, like, is right. that not going to lose people? I think the abstract nature of the, the story and the plot would, might lose people. But I also think it's possible there's someone who's just never gone to see one of these who could go see this and be like, I love it. And then go see the other Miyazaki movies and be like, oh, this is like a little, you know, not too straightforward for me, but still really good. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. So I guess I don't want to discourage anyone from seeing it, honestly, but I, but I, I worry if like you haven't started with my neighbor Totoro or what's another good one, even spirited away, spirited away, I think is the closest to this movie in terms of like the fantasy elements. Um, but it's still, you kind of know where you are at all times. You don't totally understand why certain things are happening from a fantasy perspective. Like it, that seems arbitrary sometimes, but, but I do feel like you kind of know plot wise, you kind of know what's going on. Um, whereas this, I feel like if someone started with this, I would be slightly worried that they would, <laughs> they would be like, this is too weird. Um, Cause I think, you know, one of my favorite Oscars podcasts, Mike, Mike and Oscar. Um, I think it's also Mike says, 
I don't, I couldn't tell you what this movie is about. I loved it <laughs> and it was beautiful, but I don't know the first thing about why there are certain birds and which we'll, we'll get into in spoiler mode um, or what, what all the birds mean. He was very hung up on like, there are lots of different birds. What do they mean? <laughs> it, it does. It, the, maybe the most, this was made by an 80 something year old uh, auteur was the assumption that we would know by sight what who the different birds were right uh, that oh that look very similar to me or it's just like of course everyone knows the the difference between an artistically presented heron and pelican you all know which is which and you won't be confused at all uh which maybe this is just betraying my ornithological your bird knowledge yeah. but uh yeah, I, yeah i'm I actually worried there, about right? you pt like <laughs> you, you you do like you're just filling content right like you you can tell the difference between a pelican and a heron right sure but like <laughs> i don't know like it, it was it was a lot of just sort of you know there's a lot of there's a lot of similar similar birds i feel like i mean a pelican has like a huge mouth sure yeah the pouch that hangs down i mean is it spoilers to talk about the heron's huge mouth jen yes which is why i didn't mention it okay uh, i was talking about <laughs> pelicans um anyway uh, uh, uh so i want to tackle your second question um because i do you think the majority of the of the Miyazaki films I have seen are actually with my children? We um, during the pandemic we started family movie night. The younger child doesn't really pay attention; she just like <laughs> screams and runs around. But uh, you know, my son was God uh, four when five five when the pandemic hit, and uh, so watched a lot of these movies when he's like six or seven. Um, and he really always likes when they put him on. It's not something he'll watch on his own. Like if he gets movie time, he won't say, I remember that movie. Let's put that on. But he really liked, um, Kiki's delivery service. He really liked my neighbor Totoro. Uh, and he really liked spirited away. I think are the three I remember him seeing. Um, I told my wife when I got home, like, I think she she loves Miyazaki more than I do. And so I was like, I think you should make this a, an outing with him. Um, I don't think kids will want to watch this on their own. It's But because it's a vibe feel, I feel like that often works better than we give kids credit for, that kids are just excited. And, you know, I think of a few images on screen that would really freak my son out, but I don't think there's anything there he couldn't handle uh, in the mix of it. I am saying this as uh, I let him watch Doctor Who with me and only... uh, at the 11 p.m. screaming in bed, did he make me realize that was a bad call this past weekend? So, <laughs> you know, uh, it happens. I don't always sense the line well, but I don't think there's anything as freaky as the weird toy doll thing in Doctor Who this past week. <laughs> I, I will, I, as as the non-parent, I, maybe I'm wrong on this. I, I will say I thought the uh, opening sequence and the result of that and the flashbacks to it were pretty disconcerting. Uh, it's, it, you know, I don't, I don't think it's, it's spoiling to, cause I think it was in the little brief uh, summary uh, that, or, you know, plot description Jen gave earlier, which was that this is set at the end of world war two. It opens in Tokyo when there's bombing happening in Tokyo. So there's things unfolding. Uh, there's, yeah, I think it, it's pretty intense and it's animated in a way that, uh, I think really like ramps up the experiential nature of it really puts you in the moment. Uh, and there are times when it, that's referred back to, which 
I could see being disconcerting, but maybe, you know, I, again, I would defer to both of your experiences as, as parents of children who have watched Miyazaki movies. They might, you might just be like, eh, like they've seen weirder stuff and it's fine. They've watched Bambi and it's fine. Like, you know, they've watched That's what movies. I was going to say. Like, they've watched for- enough, you know, Disney movies where bad things happen in the, in the opening minutes and they've gotten over it. Yeah. I was going to say, if your kids can handle classic Disney movies, this is probably fine, but uh, yeah, if 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 like my kids, they would be like fire. Why is there so much fire? Like, what happened to his mom? Like, they'd have like lots of <laughs> traumatic, traumatized questions. Then maybe this is not for them. I will say just anecdotally in my theater. So I went to an IMAX screening in the evening. It was probably about it, it was, this. We pro- by the time we started, it was like seven thirty, and about like a third of the way in. A family or a part of a family with a very small child, he was probably like three, maybe four, came in and he <laughs> talked and asked questions for the rest of the movie very oh. loudly, um, which I didn't mind because I have kids of my own and I get it. But at the same time, I was like, I only take my kids to screenings in the daytime when I know there's going to mm-hmm. be a ton of other kids doing the exact same thing. It's kind of like accepted that we're just going to be talking through the movie. Um well, and then that's a moment where I can teach them, oh, like, like, you know, if it's a quiet scene, like, don't try not to talk or whatever. But, you know, you like, it's less kind of embarrassing when you're like, my kid won't shut up and everyone's shushing them. Right. Um, which did happen a little bit at, the, at my screening. Um, but the kid seemed fine. He was kind of like he kept asking questions about, like, why is that happening? Oh, what's happening to him? Why is he sad? Right. Like that kind of stuff. But he didn't seem like traumatized by it at any point. But he did come in after the opening. So it's like, I don't know. He was, it was already full throw, full, full throated, like fantasy craziness by the time he entered the movie. So, and, I don't and presumably know. the adults with him also hadn't seen the opening mm. setup of, of stuff. So, right. they probably didn't really have good answers because I barely would have answers to those questions now, having watched the entire movie uninterrupted of like, what's happening there? I'd be like, I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> here's a children's edible. Like, I hope I enjoy the ride, kid. In defense of that kid, I will point out the middle-aged woman in the row in front of me who just took a phone call in the middle of the movie. Just it rang and she put it up to her ear and whispered and thought this was an acceptable behavior. So I'll take the kid asking questions over dumbass lady taking a phone call any night of the week. So maybe her husband also texting and. And I, I did the, I changed how my legs were crossed and kicked the seat next to him. Totally passive aggressively. Like, Hey, I see you texting and it's bothering me, but no, 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 I'm just uncrossing my legs. So uh, (laughs) that's, that's my go-to move uh, when somebody's being a jerk. (laughs) Maybe we need a movie therapy, movie etiquette therapy segment (laughs) so we can air all our grievances. Um, So in general, I'd say with, in terms of kid recommendation, if you are introducing your kids to Miyazaki, I would highly recommend Ponyo, Kiki's Delivery Service, and My Neighbor Totoro. I think those are the most the kid-friendly and kids will be interested in them. My kids only want to watch the Totoro parts of My Neighbor Totoro. They want me to fast forward mm. through them. Um, so you can do that. So I think we're ready to move on to spoiler mode, right? We yeah. Good? Okay. Yeah. Let's spoil it. <laughs> so if you have not seen The Boy and the Heron... Or don't know how to pronounce Heron. That's the other. Can I get on my soapbox for this for like two seconds before we keep going? <laughs> okay. It's I can identify the... visually a Heron. So, you know, <laughs> we'll, you know, we'll decide if this is worse. <laughs> so 
on all the podcasts I listen to, everyone keeps calling it the boy and the heron. Oh, yeah, what's that about? That's, I've heard that too. That's not that's not an accepted alternate no. pronunciation. No. Of heron, right? Is that no. some weird Midwest no. thing? I don't know. Let's fly over state stuff. I don't know. If I had to guess, I would say one person did it, and then everyone else had imposter syndrome, and was like, "Oh, I must be pronouncing it incorrectly," and then changed to Heron because it's pretty consistent. Like these are like highbrow movie critics being like the boy and the Heron, and I'm like, "What? It's a bird called a Heron. Like, what? Do we not know that? I don't know. It made me angry." <laughs> the, the Google pronunciation, Google also never wrong is is, is Heron. I don't know. Okay, it's, so yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, are you assuming heron is like a Japanese word that you don't know? And that's why you're trying to pronounce <laughs> uh, it like it's a foreign language. That's, you know, and, the, and then that makes me angrier if that's the case. But I don't know. Anyway, so that, that's my, but we've said the word heron enough that I probably didn't need to specify that. Anyway, we are going to spoiler mode. I think it's good. If you have not seen The Boy and the Heron and you do not wish to have it spoiled, please go see it. It's great. You'll have a great time. Come back and rejoin our conversation. Okay, so I want to start. I didn't have a lot of time to think about the questions I wanted to put in our Google Doc for today. So a lot of them are just kind of like very practical questions about what happened in this movie. And so I want to start with, I feel like the the biggest potential point of confusion and then sort of reveal, I think, is that he, he kind of towards the end of the movie realizes that his stepmother is his actual mother that died. Whether or not that's figurative, I, I don't think no. that's true. You don't think that's, that's true. not true. I, I think I think his mom is the you know is young in the fantasy world, and she returns back to earlier in the timeline, and will still grow up to become his mom and die in the fire. In the oh hospital. right, because the 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 girl in the apron, who's Lady Himi in the fantasy world. Yep, she's the oh she's the sister. So they are, so they are sisters. So this is the thing. Yes. It's because he starts calling yes. her mother. So so the dad lost his wife in the fire. Spoiler, there's what PT was avoiding mm-hmm. talking about. And then went and married her sister. And yes. the little boy sees immediately, like, it, she looks just like my mother. Like, that's weird. Um, and then slowly pieces that together. And then the explanation is that when the mother was a little girl, she disappeared for a little while. Uh, months i think they said and came back exactly as she had been year yes um and so then when he's in the other realm um that is the the person he encounters and has an adventure with him so this this movie is essentially petite maman just exactly the same movie don't even bother to see it uh it's the same movie and i do think that's kind of beautiful so you're not wrong that at the end then he is saying that he's calling her mother and it's accepting that his biological mother is gone and that this woman is now his mother and he can trust her and he loves her. And so it is the, the final move you are correct is affirming that relationship. It's just, you know, making it clear that this is him kind of moving on from the mother he lost. Yeah. Yeah. The stepmother's not the biological mother, but he embraces her as you are my mother now, as he's like, searching for for her in the in the underworld because okay. i think my confusion came from when 
they're sort of revealing the kind of time loop of his actual his birth mother when she's like he's she's like i need to go so i can grow up and become your mother right she's like i need to go back to my timeline then i was like oh is this like is this his birth but then later we see mm-hmm. that there's this younger sibling that was actually born so i was so i wasn't quite sure where the sort of like the metaphorical because i do think this whole movie much like neighbor totoro is like using fantasy as a way to cope with real life uh and, and sort of like he's co- trying to accept the, de- the loss of his mother and then accept his new family uh with his aunt as his new mother which i also thought at the at the beginning because when that line when he's like you look exactly like a mother my mother oh that's it so it must be her sister right and that's going to be like the big thing um but then i got confused at the end so that makes sense uh, well, you I don't want to skip over. I think the most stunningly beautiful message to me in this is that the yeah. little girl in that moment you're describing is saying, oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to die. But I have to do that. And I want to do that because I have to give birth to you. And this kind of beautiful gift of like, I know that the most important thing I have to do is create you. And that means my life is kind of beautiful beautiful and and special so i'm gonna go do it that's just like stunningly gorgeous and heroic and like all these wonderful kind of so it is all mythological and understanding the real world but you know in the fantasy elements it's about a mother's love and again as we picture miyazaki as a very old man saying i i really i i have no idea if any of this is at all related to his personal story but kind of saying that you know loss is a part of life and that doesn't make a choice wrong that's really you know if to me that's beautiful it's the point of mythology is to teach the next generation a thing or two and and that's a beautiful thing to teach them i i believe the line from the young mom i i i should know the character's name but i can't remember petite maman uh yeah petite maman (laughs) Uh, uh, Nachiko, I think, is her is okay. the step is not the birth mother, but the step the stepmother. No, sorry, the birth aunt. mother. Um, I mean the birth mother. Oh, they he meets I the don't young. Say her name a ton. That's the thing in the in the underworld. Is that Kiriko? No, that's the granny. Oh, Kiriko. No, you're right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Himi. Lady Himi. Yeah. Lady Himi. Um, I said something like the fire, like f- I'm not afraid of fire is like the way of saying it. And she's mm. had like these fire powers all along. So she's like, I'm not afraid of fire. And it's, you know, be- for all the great things that, that, that Greg just said, cause it's like, Oh, she's ready to go. And like, I'm going to live my life and it's going to end badly, but I'm not like going to be upset by that because that's part of the whole cycle. And I, I have not to skip, uh, you know, ahead too much, but uh, one of the other questions Jen has on the sheet is what's the sort of connection between the fantasy world and the real world and the uh, interpretation that like I was sort of trying to figure out. And then I, I, I read someone and it was, you know, an anonymous person on a, on a subreddit talking about this movie. So there's, I, I can't like cite, uh, I don't ever have the screen name, um, but I like this made sense. And it was kind of connected with what I was trying to say, which is in many ways, the connection between the fantasy world and the real world is, uh, Miyazaki telling younger generations, and I think particularly it's supposed to be like his grandson. Like in in real life, he has a grandson, and he was like, "I made this movie for my grandchildren," saying like, you know, stuff like passing on, like moving on from generation to generation, accepting loss, accepting grief, accepting the real world is what you should do. And I mean, the point of the main main character's sort of big choice, Mahito's big choice, is not to stay with the granduncle in 
take over the running of a fantasy world, but instead go back to a flawed and and broken and and grief inducing real world to try to you know make that a better place. And so in a way, it kind of feels like Miyazaki being like, here's my life and here's my legacy. I've been trying to balance these blocks for my whole life and my time is almost up. You don't do this. Like you make sure don't don't just do this. Like make sure that you go and and embrace the 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 pain and the heartache, um, but also the love and the joy of the real world. Um, and so yeah, from that, like I'm not afraid of fire on um I was I'm just I was I was a mess in the theater. I'm just weepy, <laughs> a weepy boy in my in my little my little seat in the theater. Yeah, and that's the beauty of most Miyazaki movies is that it very quickly kicks into gear and then you're like everything's coming together in a way that is really beautiful and poignant. Reminds me of another film that came out this year where an old man who had spent (laughs) his whole life studying the past almost decided to live out his life in a fantastic otherworldly realm. Yes, my friends, I'm talking about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Look, I just want to be clear to the audience. It's a bit at this point, and I try to work my way there. But there is something to me actually related to about the fact that the message they chose to do in that film was also a kind of, hey, boomers, let's not live in our fantasy. Let's actually teach the next generation to be very present and to take care of this world and these people. And that's what matters. And I... You know, look, I bash boomers like the rest of the world because it's fun. But I do think there's this really kind of poignant bit to somebody who, you know, Miyazaki, I guess, would technically not be a boomer because he grew up during the war. He'd be older than that. But greatest generation. Yes. Yes. Greatest generation. So it is very poignant to think that as he ends nears the end of his life, as he nears the end of his artistic expression, that he would take the space to recommit to fantasy is wonderful. The fantastic is incredible. Art is incredible, but make sure you're taking care of the people and taking care of each other. And I think those generations, as we're losing the greatest generation and starting to lose the the boomers is we are seeing that they have seen the world kind of decline over the, the course of their lives. Um, and it goes back to the quote I picked for the opening, right? Like you think you can control this space, but it's messy and it's silly and it's, it's, it's uh, hard to control. Why not uh, try to just be building those personal connections by be trying to help each other out, be embracing a woman who's trying really hard to be your mother and call her mother and just embrace the beauty of it. Um, You know, PT essentially said it before, like that's the deal. Maybe the deal sucks, but that, that's the deal we got. So let's let's take it. There's also something interesting about it, to, if to, to try to to that reading or or carry forward that reading of the grand uncle at the top of the tower who's in charge of these alternate realities and the connections between them is is Miyazaki making his fantasy world. But then the the child is still of the age or he was only slightly older than Miyazaki himself would have been since it is set as he's a child at the end of, of world war two in 1945 Mm. um, when Miyazaki would have been four and a half or so years old. So this kid is again, a little older. So, you know, but it's interesting that it's, it feels like so much of his work is coping with 
the fallout of uh of of world war ii the ramifications it had on his life both personal and just the the society around him and the sort of i don't know collective trauma and guilt of that experience in japan uh and and how that has affected him and the messages he's trying to send so you know there's there's something something interesting there of you know you can't just easily read it as like it's miyazaki and he's talking to his his descendants, both in, in his fans and in his family, because it's also he's talking to himself as as a younger mm-hmm. person. Before I chime in on that, we're already talking about what I had planned for the rhetorical situation. So I think we're going to dip in there and we can dip back out for other non-rhetorical situation spoilers. So this is the rhetorical situation, a segment in which we look at a film through the lens of our academic experience. Greg and PT are both waving their hands in a very jaunty way. It's great. So in In the teaching of writing, the rhetorical situation refers to any contextual factors that influence composing and interpretation. I'd say the biggest one that I could think of for this was what we've been talking about for the last few minutes of the, this movie as sort of a metaphor for Miyazaki, his retirement and his legacy, you know, the sort of like critical discourse surrounding this, the release of this movie was is, is around his retirement, right? Like where the wind rises was actually supposedly his last film. And then this, for this movie, he's coming out of retirement. Uh, and then people, and now, and now I think there's rumblings that this, this one might not even be the last one, right? He's not actually, he was planning to retire after this one. And now just kidding. And once again, how is that kind of impacting how people are going to see this movie or think about this movie in terms of, the movie itself, but also his legacy, do you think? Well, I think one way is the way that I think you, as a as the biggest fan here, the you know, the longest term fan, connected with it, which was seeing it as a you know, threading together a lot of things and segments and and themes from his other movies. And so it was like, oh, you know, this is again, this is the capstone. This is the the culmination, which maybe we've talked about this in other episodes, uh, you know, just Meta discussing its this movie's position in the Oscar race, maybe that was undermined by by the time it came out in Japan last summer. He was like, actually, the other movie I was thinking of doing along with this, I'm doing that one too. So this isn't my last movie. This isn't another Wind Rises where I'm, you know, the, the, this is the, the the third annual retirement tour for Miyazaki is on, and I'm doing another another film. So uh, you know, m- maybe it's taken away from that, but I do think that. Because of we don't know what happens in the future per, uh, you know, maybe themes of his movies. Uh, we don't know how life's going to unfold. Maybe he won't be able to finish that other movie. Uh, hopefully he can and can do anything he wants for as long as he wants. Uh, but I think that there's something about these themes of what's your legacy? What does it mean to sort of move on and and kind of generation to generation? The difference between a character like the, the, the mom, you know, younger mom uh, who who you know, grows up to become the, the older biological mom saying like, yep, like I'm going to live my life and it's going to end and that's going to be fine because of what I've done versus the guy who read too many books and lives in the tower and is is living way, you know, h- hundreds of years beyond uh, how, when he was supposed to and is building and shaping these worlds in order to 
feel power and control that is is always just like right outside of his grasp. That's really well said. I might take this opportunity to go into more detail about the other references that I noticed. Please. Since I can't really talk about those in spoiler mode. So I'm probably not going to get them all. But the biggest ones are when we see the like giant rock kind of come down. That is like cast like so much of that aspect of it and the sort of um the the bloodline and the the relationship between this family and this like kind of cosmic power or whatever it is that felt very castle in the sky to me like the of the the laputa and like the you know this lost world that only a descendant of this family that used to rule there like can kind of unlock the secrets to go back there and stuff like that so that felt very like i saw a lot of castle in the sky in this movie and then you know anytime you see a bush with like a hole in it you have to think of Totoro because it's like and Alice in Wonderland in general is a huge influence for Miyazaki and just the idea of we stumble into a whole 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 other fantasy world and then what we learn there and what we do there kind of helps us better understand when we go home what's going on in our own world and so anytime you see kind of like a rabbit hole looking type thing (laughs) I always think of my neighbor Totoro Um, and yeah the idea that he's supposed to it's a sort of forbidden area that he's not supposed to go to but his curiosity can't makes it and this annoying heron i guess makes it so that he he eventually has to go like he can't he can't avoid it um also so the inevitability of that kind of also feels like totoro um and then spirit away just with all of the basically when we go into the fantasy world everything in there and that there seems to be all these pre-existing rules and norms that we along with um Mahito have to kind of learn as we go and then he just he he stumbles into this and it seems like everything's established and like the pirate played by Florence Pugh I really love that character uh she did a great job with the oh, voice performance cool. um uh right because you guys didn't see the dubbed yeah oh yeah. we should have talked about that earlier probably in the not spoiler mode um mm-hmm. it's okay we can talk about it in a minute uh you know she's like don't you know that these like she's like kind of like talking to him like why don't you know how this world works and he's like i have no idea what's going on um in a way that's really fun and so so that a lot of that sort of felt like like uh spirited away where like the main character goes into this like spirit realm and then has to sort of and the uh, the apprenticeship too between the two of them between the pirate character and the um mahito is like very much like the um i can't remember her name which is terrible uh but the the woman who works in the bathhouse for the spirits and then oh, right. she kind of mm. takes on like she like like she has to get a job that felt a lot like the the fish, the fishing and the butchering of the fish and stuff like that felt a lot like mm-hmm. that part of spirited away. So those are kind of the biggest ones. I'm sure there are a bunch of other ones, too. Yeah, I, that's great. I mean, yeah, because I wouldn't have picked up on all of those, especially some of the, the visual ones. I had sort of felt the spirited away parallels as the most kind of clear comparison. And I think that that. Th- to go back maybe, and again, now we're in spoiler mode, so it's weird to be like, let's go back to the recommendation algorithm. But uh, I think that, you know, in speaking of like, who's going to be able to get this, I think that something that unlocked for me, and granted it was relatively early, I only, you know, after watching a couple of them, um, that made me sort of go from being like, okay, I think I understand, is that like, there does always seem to be rules, even though it feels very kind of vibey and, uh, even at its most abstract, which I think this is pretty, this one gets pretty abstract, uh, that there's always the feeling of 
you know, a, a character who's traveled to the underworld or has traveled into this place, who's on a, this journey or this in this quest, and is like, what is going on? And then there's someone who's just sort of like, you don't get, like, what are you doing? What are you, of course, like, you got to do this or you can't have that. And like, it, well, this is the way it's set up. That like, there's, because there's someone who thinks it's all very normal and, and clear, it makes more sense. It's a great grounding technique that uh, is is in a few of his other movies um, and it comes through, I think works really well in this one. But I think all of that kind of, to go back to our original question about Miyazaki's legacy in this movie, like it feels like a magnum opus in a way that a lot of the other films don't because I saw so many of those threads kind of coming together. Um, Greg, what do you think about this idea of like Miyazaki retiring and this move, like this movie's sort of placement in that uncertain timeline. I don't, Jen. Moving on. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, amazing. No, uh, very interesting to listen to. <laughs> um, that soundboard is really going to be the death of me, I think. Uh, so uh, as I become a caricature be of myself, uh, as uh, so I think you're right that uh, one way to interpret this as the final film is... Uh, is magnum opus, right? Like, let me leave it all on the field. Let me do all my greatest hits. You know, when we uh, listened to our, uh, or when we recorded our episode on Priscilla, we talked about how Sofia Coppola is just like, I do my thing, watch me do my thing, just like Wes Anderson does that. And why aren't we also including like a Miyazaki in that that group, right? Where it's like, yes, he has a very specific language, a very particular set of tropes. And when they get remixed, we don't always appreciate necessarily the the differences and the like the the meaning in the variation as much as we do just what what um, we see in front of us. We're kind of wowed by the spectacle more than we are the the nuance of it. But I'm going to return to, I really thought of it a lot more as less of an artist saying, this is all I have in me, as an artist saying, it's time for me to lay down my brushes. And I see a lot here that, um, as I've already spoken to, is like an old man passing this on. And uh, having already confessed that I'm not the biggest Studio Ghibli expert, as I understand what happened is he did retire. Miyazaki did retire. And the studio, as HBO Max launched, now known just as Max, put out a 3D animated Studio Ghibli film, which, as I understand, is what is otherwise known as hot garbage, right? That is just, like, really not good, really kind of lost the magic, lost the thrill of it. Um, and is it is, I believe, directed by Miyazaki's son. Exactly. So Miyazaki left it to his son. His son didn't get it. And so this felt like, as I understood that narrative, this is like, let me now return and maybe I can teach my grandson how to do this uh, and do a little better. Um, you know, and, and I really want to be clear that I'm regurgitating years of podcast listening. I'm, I'm not going to uh, affirmatively state any of that. But I do think there's a way in which the medium because animation is a medium, not a genre, uh, is affecting this conversation, which this is also a dying art, um, that hand-drawn animation, which there are CG elements in here. You could pick them out at times, you know, um, but um, hand-drawn animation is is kind of a dying art, and it it is something that is still really special and kind of pure to get in our present day. It's like, oh, somebody took the time to tell the story 
that way as opposed to i i know jen i'm sure your kids watch the same things my kids watch where you're like there's the cg animation that literally took like five minutes to render it's like barely <laughs> like no textures just all like flapping mouths on weird uh anthropomorphized <laughs> foods or whatever and you're like sure kids enjoy um and so you're going after so, that that veggie netflix show right i think I, that's yes yeah, yeah that's the epitome <laughs> or, or of what number you're blocks about. Yeah, 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 or yeah. any of these others. So, but so to kind of where I'm, I'm rambling through a few thoughts here, but I see all of that folding in at once. And so, um, when I talked, uh, when when I saw your notes for rhetorical situation, um, I threw in a, a reference to the seminal John Berger essay, which is uh, called Ways of Seeing, uh, which deals with the fact that we can't appreciate a work of art. Uh, independent of its context entirely. The key, the key idea from the essay is called mystification, which is essentially that as soon as you put a work of art in a museum, you've now put importance on it in some way that you, you know, can't ever undo. And the, the kind of best example from the heart of his essay or best in my view is he puts a, a Van Gogh painting, a wheat field with crows on the, on the page. And, um, just kind of says react to this and then your students dutifully turn the page and it's the exact same painting except it says it now says um, this is the last painting Van Gogh created before he killed himself sorry trigger warning for suicide um, and the I've I've read I've done this with students right and it's like you throw it on screen and you're like interpret this painting for me and they are full of life and all these different ideas and all this imagination and then you tell them that simple sentence and they're like oh it's all bleak and everything's over and that's that's there and so I think it would be folly to ever try to unpack this work without thinking of it as an artist at the end of his career looking essentially over the cliff of the end of his art right and deciding whether let me fold all these uh old greatest hits back into it let me also lay down my paintbrush like the the beautiful ambiguity of a miyazaki film is it's not this or that it's yes and 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 when you put the, all those layers on especially with this kind of mythology of um of, of multiple fantastical realms and so on. I think that just makes this like really rich experience. And part of why this one spoke to me, I think um, as opposed to some of the others. Now here's, I'm going to throw it to you with a, a question for a more of a Miyazaki expert. What struck me is I also thought of Alice in Wonderland a lot when watching this. Um, but in Alice in Wonderland, you essentially are getting a dream world where the elements from, um, from the real world have infiltrated the dream space and she's kind of reliving those very much like wizard of Oz, right? Where you're like, Oh, the old witch is like that lady. And the, those two guys outside are, are the scarecrow and all that. Um, but what I thought was really striking here is that the realms seemed permeable. And in my memory of other Miyazaki, I kind of thought we went into the fantasy realm, the hero worked on themselves and then they came back having changed. But this felt like we were going back and forth a lot, actually cutting back to the the realm of the commonplace without the hero's involvement and seeing what the father was doing and how people are reacting. So that felt different and feels like even more of his way to say, you think you can put a thumbtack in me and say what this is, but it's all of it. It, it could be everything all at once or some such. 
I really like that. I think, I mean, I, I do see the sort of Alice in Wonderland parallels and like not quite as satirically, I think, as in Alice in Wonderland. Um, but, you know, the big thing I think of is just like the the wartime context that this movie starts with, I feel like is kind of the undercurrent of the fantasy world because we have like the, you know, to go to go with PT's uh, Zencaster moniker for today, the noble pelican right like the the war of the pe- like how the pelicans are assumed to be these bloodthirsty birds and that go after everybody and then and then you get the backstory of like, sort of like why they are the way they are and how the weird position they've been put in in this world and stuff like that and how they're just trying to survive and then then we get the noble death of the the one pelican who's telling the story i feel like to me that felt very subtextually connected to just war right and the idea that like mm. there are no there are no victors or moral uh, sort of like heroes in war necessarily that it's just it's like everybody everybody is suffering and trying to survive. And then and then these conflicts occur or something like that. And then also kind of the warmongering of the the parakeets, like how they have the this king or duke because they're little signs that they held up that say duke. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but he's, you know, he's their their monarch. Right. Uh, uh, who was um, Dave Bautista? Um, uh, it was the voice These revelations are just killing me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, because uh, wait, wait, you... wait till we get to the big one, Greg. The big one's gonna blow your mind. Oh, I know. <laughs> oh wait, I think he knows what the. Well, whatever. Sorry, Jen. We interrupted your your point. Do you mean? Yeah, do you mean? Mar- do you mean Mark Hamill? No. I meant the heron. Yeah. Oh, who yeah, yeah, yeah. you think well, should like be Mark that, Hamill, right? but no. Right. Or Willem Dafoe, who is the noble yeah. pelican. Who's the I pelican, yeah. Mm. Um anyway, so yeah, I I saw I saw threads of that as, as like because to me this is emo- the emotional arc of this movie is the closest to my neighbor Totoro, as I kind of alluded to earlier, because it's like the deal because in, in Totoro it's sort of like dealing with the trauma of a sick parent and kind of contemplating their mortality like you know the emo- children can't emotionally handle that and so they they have totoro in this fantasy world to kind of help them through it right this is much more like there seem to be direct parallels in terms of like the yeah the the warring between the different creatures and then also like the the little dolls like the of the of the grannies yes weren't those great like, the little protective dolls or yeah. underneath the table. Yeah. Right. So clearly there's like, and maybe this is the sort of seepage that Greg was talking about where it's like, well, do those, what's the, are those like totems for the grannies? Like if we destroyed those dolls, do the grannies, something bad mm. happen to the grannies, you know what I mean? But then also the Kiriko's, um, she becomes a doll, but she's also the pirate whose name yeah. I can't remember. So it's like. Lawrence Pugh. Yeah. Well, uh, I think her name is as a pirate is also Kiriko. Is also okay. So like, but then oh, so then it's at the end she becomes a doll and then goes in his pocket. But then well, she comes he, yeah, back. Right? Doesn't doesn't she give him the doll and says take the doll and he puts it in the pocket and then she sprouts back to yeah. life as the old woman from his pocket. Oh, that's right. So right, it seems like there's a version of everybody almost mm. in in mm-hmm. the fantasy world um, in a way that's really interesting. Um, yeah, there's there's also something interesting to 
because something that Greg Greg gave both of you have both just gave very good monologues, and I'll just sort of ramble uh, about something unrelated for a minute. Uh, but uh, <laughs> one thing that Greg mentioned, which was uh, notable that or stood out to me, was how the movie would cut back to the real world and cut back to the estate, this country estate, and everyone being like, "Well, what the heck are we doing? Like, we can't find." the lady of the house and we can't find the kid and we can't find one of the grannies like this isn't good uh and those were the moments when while you know the first couple times we did it where i was like i don't know why we're doing this like this is dumb like this like that's when i started to be like is any of this actually going to come together that feels unnecessary and like almost underscores the sort of weird episodic nature of things in the dream world but like once everything, the sort of the, the the story culminates and it becomes clear that the, again, as we've sort of uh, already covered, the the whole takeaway is that this character needs to choose or, or is going to choose to return to the real world instead of getting all this power in a, in a fantasy zone that, you know, that, that inherently makes it interesting to sort of keep seeing what's happening in the real world, but also like what's going on there is so complicated in the theme of war and conflict because they're out in the country because they got out of Tokyo because Tokyo is being bombed. But then the dad is all like, yeah, everything's going great. Cause I'm running a factory. We're building parts for fighter jets. Like we're building cockpits and the cockpits are brought to the estate. Cause for some reason they can't stay at the factory for a while. And then the people who come to help with that are then helping with the search. But then it's like, we can't do the search anymore. Just bring the cockpits away. And they're all carrying the cockpits out. So there's this like, like I fake uh, setting that like, Oh, everything's peaceful and calm here. And it's sort of the fact that there is this whole roiling fantasy parallel worlds happening with the birds versus birds and all this like fire and stuff happening is very, it's just like in reality where there's a whole war still going on and Tokyo is still being bombed and, and folks are off on planes and boats in battles and maybe Godzilla is rising up. We don't know. That's a different movie. That's a crossover. We can deal with it at a different time. There's also the, you just reminded me, there's also the, the sort of sea full of ghost ships. Which also mm, feels yes. very much like war imagery, yep. right? Like, mm-hmm. like these are all the fallen, the fallen ships. Um, now you're making me think maybe going into the fantasy world is an allegory for them returning to Tokyo, or like his choice mm. to be like, no, we're going to go back, right? Yeah. It ultimately mirrors their decision to move back to Tokyo despite it being war torn and destroyed. Um, I don't have anything smart really, but just to say that also puts Lion Witch in the wardrobe into the conversation here, right? Because the Pevensey children yes. are pulled out of London uh, during the Blitz and are only enter their fantasy realm uh, because of that. So, so structurally, this actually matches that pretty closely. Um, I really like the point about the ghost ships and one, I would say my favorite segment, which we haven't really mentioned much of, I like the, I will call it the Pixar soul section where we have the, you know, you need a little cutesy thing to sell plushies of at your comic book stores and Wara Wara. <laughs> um, and just this beautiful idea that the job of uh, the pirate, which again, I saw the subtitle version, so I didn't know it was Florence Pugh. I'll just call her Florence Pugh, uh, has to feed the souls and give them the energy to float up and go be born. And then the threat of the pelicans. And so in the, I, I think it's a beautiful scene and it's, it's, you know, tragic and the fire is a part of it, but in the 
context of this is allegory for the war. It's like, oh, what are who are the people in Japan not getting born because of the war and the destruction and the birds um, and all. And in that case, it's the pelicans who return to, to eat the, the souls. Um, and that uh, again, makes me think a lot about the new Godzilla movie, which we are not reviewing on this podcast, but people should totally go see uh, because there's a lot at stake in that as well about who are the, what are the lives that don't get lived uh, in these contexts. And um, you know, it, it's it's really quite wonderful it is also makes me just just think a little bit too about what is the difference between building blocks in a fantasy realm and building cockpits back to pt's comment right and yes one is the machine of war but are we also worried that our actions in art and creativity are just inspiring the worst impulses of humans as well so i think miyazaki is holding all that intention and that again is what draws me to to these works. And we we see that pop up in some of his other works. I mean, I know PT this is the one that you haven't seen, but The Wind Rises is a lot about the sort of like military industrial complex of Japan and like sort of like, you know, manufacturing and and making planes and stuff like that. And and also Porco Rosso is a is a good wartime because it's like about um fighter pilots. They're pigs, but they're, you know, they're still fighter pilots fighting a war. Um mm. And like Nausicaa too, which I can't believe I haven't mentioned that one because it's like one of that's probably my favorite Miyazaki movie. Um, it's a big, big war happening. Like a war, a war in general actually is a big theme that pops up in most Miyazaki movies. So obviously it had a big impact. He doesn't on him. like it. He's not. He's anti. not a fan. Yeah. Um, and and actually a very Tolkien sort of way because he often ties that to like an eco critical stance mm. where it's like not only are we killing each other but we are also destroying the earth um there's less of that i think in this movie but um is definitely definitely running throughout the other ones i feel like we can't move on to oscar's watch without talking about birds uh we've been teasing it every once in a while so what do you why do you think there's so many different types of birds in this movie and i want to tack on to that kind of a sub question of the image of and this is not specific to birds but the image of a creature millions of a creature subsuming someone i feel like we see multiple versions of that imagery mm-hmm. the frogs what's going on with that mm-hmm. so you can pick what either one of those what's happening what what is the what role maybe it is eco critical what is the, what role uh, are birds and sort of like the imagery of like the birds are the fighter jets oh i don't know is that I, really I mean, it I'm just that <laughs> wait a minute there. oh no i don't <laughs> think so uh but no i yeah i mean it's it's i, I it feels like I have no idea what the actual answer is, but there's something about like, I feel like people look at birds and they see like the idea of freedom and flying and being like, I can soar away. Like you're not tied down to reality in, in, in the way that um, we are as humans. And when we dream, a lot of times we we're, we're flying. That's a, a very common sort of dream area. So it feels like having your guide into this dream world, alternate reality, underworld, whatever it might be, be a bird and and there's other birds that are there, all feels like it's tying into that because then you get there and it's like, oh, that's actually not better. And sort of the, the fact that the 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 escape, the sort of uh, maybe the escapism uh, of what we're thinking, what we're dreaming could be a better place actually isn't necessarily better and we need to make where we are on the ground better instead. Mm, I like that. 
I would, I don't have an answer uh, or anything as smart as PT to say, but I will offer that. I also think there's a lot of subversion of the birds going on. Um, So uh, my associations with a heron or an egret, you know, these are birds that are considered noble, great beauty. Where I grew up in New Hampshire, there, you know, you can see Canada goose, just any old place. But if you spotted a blue heron kind of walking in a marsh or fishing, it was or flying, it was like, whoa, wait, look, there's a blue heron. It was kind of stood apart as a, a noble creature, and it's it's more solitary, right? That You don't see a flock of them. You see one uh, by itself. And so I do think there's a subversion of that here, right? Because they uh, the, the kind of turn that enters us into the fantasy world is that the heron becomes monstrous, and there's a little dude inside the heron, and the way they transform is really upsetting and it 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 really just is kind of purposefully grossly rendered so you take this kind of noble beautiful bird and you subvert it in that way and then the parakeets i mean when you think of a parakeet you think of like the dumbest of dumb birds right like let's just throw it in a cage uh it, it doesn't have any worth and yet those become the threat and they don't have a particular intelligence but their number which is also weird because parakeets are usually isolated or in pairs as you know so um so i guess what all i'm noting is that when we have the birds they are not fulfilling their kind of standard mythological cultural associations they're flipping them in a weird way is that because we're in the upside down and you know the the way the parakeets kind of transform as they exit the door and they shrink down and fly off and just always just poop a lot and like immediately <laughs> I, which yeah it's like okay. i was wondering if I, uh-uh. i'm like i better not be the one who brings this up like. <laughs> so it's like it is like we we are the door is inverting each of these birds i don't have as good a read on the pelicans in that context i think i don't have a lot of cultural association with pelicans um i uh, they are not around me. I think of them as a southern bird, like a southeast mm-hmm. United I States thought bird. Thought of them as like a as a weird like anti stork because instead of delivering these babies born into the world, they're trying to eat them. Mm. Yeah, that's a good. But read. like, but maybe mm-hmm. that's maybe that's conflating pelicans and storks in a way that's not problematic. I don't know. But just now, the, who doesn't know birds? All birds are the same to you, people. Look, each, <laughs> each bird culture has its own nuance and. Um, well, um, and, and that joke is also kind of, I think, in play here by making everything birds like, you know, if this was Orwell and it was pigs and horses and, and different animals, I think that would feel very different. This is kind of a reminder that all our factions are kind of silly because if you are somebody like, say, uh, Noble PT, uh, all birds are the same and it's just birds, but that they see differences in the, between them, I think, can be read as a metaphor for humanity. Can we just talk real quickly through the rest of the voice cast, the Amer- the dub voice cast that we haven't done yet? Uh, Jen, do, that, do you know? Do you know just, who were the Pelicans besides Dave Bautista? I saw it. it's Dan Stevens. Yep. And oh wait, the, who's the other one? I was shocked yep. when I saw this. In the um, it, it's Tony Revolori. Yeah, that's right. And hey. then Lobby Boy, uh, Lobby Boy, and then uh, I'm going to see if I can pronounce this right. Uh, Mamidou Ache, who is the voice of one of the main characters in Elemental and has been oh. in a bunch of other, apparently it looks like. 
He's been on Broadway and has been in a bunch of little TV shows and movies. Uh, who looks he looks very familiar. He's at that guy's status, I think. Um, the dad's Christian Bale. Uh, that, was, that was very apparent. That made okay. Um, and that, like Newsy's Christian Bale. Uh, I was gonna accent. ask. He, he, he's, he's doing do, more he's New doing York accent. Yeah, not he's his British. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, the the sister who becomes the second the stepmother is Gemma Chan. Mm. Makes sense. Now, Greg, do you know? And then there's two people who all know all due respect to them. I don't know who they are. Uh, I mean, Karen Fukuhara. Oh, she's from The Boys. Uh, who was on The Boys, which uh, is a show I've not watched. So I didn't recognize her name. And it looks like no Wikipedia page for Luca um, Padovin, who was Mojito or Padovan. Right. He's sure. probably like an actual child. Um, but Greg, do you know who was the heron? Are you aware of this in the American dub? Uh, I I really uh, so I knew Mark Hamill was in this. You didn't mention, or we mentioned before, Mark Hamill is the grand uncle. Right, he's a great. And so, but I uh, so I do know the truth that you're hinting at, and I will say though, when I heard the heron in the trailer with the American dub, I was like, oh, awesome, that's Mark Hamill doing the heron. (laughs) And so, when it was of course revealed that it is not a one Batman movie, but a two Batman movie. Because Robert Pattinson is playing the Heron, that blew my mind. And I, if anything gets me to go see the dubbed version, or probably, to be honest, we'll wait till it's streaming on Max. Um, I really want to hear that performance. It's actually two Batmans and a Joker because of Mark Hamill. Oh, well done, well done. Which is great. Um, <laughs> so I, in general, was very happy with the the dub. I mean, I think in general, my recommendation because if you're if you're in kind of like if you're like on an anime subreddit or something like that right everyone will be very adamant that you always have to go sub and not dub that's generally accepted as being superior but i would say the one exception is miyazaki movies because i feel like they've done such a great job casting these and they get such talented actors the one thing is that some of these actors are so their voices are so iconic and they're so famous Mm. that it could be a little bit distracting so like that was sort of the case I could probably mostly in this case for Christian Bale because you're like it's it's like Newsy's Batman talking to me um, <laughs> or or it might be like actually yeah the rest of them were, were fine I think that's probably the only one I was like that's Christian Bale doing an accent um, does you uh, didn't go full oh go ahead great we're both trying to rush the same just thing. Ask, does Florence Pugh uh, use her accent or does she have an Americanized voice she's American she sounds American. Okay. Because I, I shout out I to Puss in Boots, uh, The Last Wish, right. is Florence Pugh plays Baby Bear doing her actual oh, British that's accent. Right, that's right. Yeah, that's great. Or sorry, she's Goldilocks, um, not Baby Bear. She's Goldilocks. Goldilocks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And again, that movie, just a shout out, Puss in Boots, you have Olivia Coleman and Ray Stevenson, State Mac from Kingdom of the Crystal Skull playing the adopted parents of Florence Pugh. And it's like, that's an Oscar movie. Like they happen to be bears and Goldilocks, but that like, I will totally go yep. see that movie. Um, so yeah, for sure. Um, cool. I, I, yeah. Florence Pugh had an American accent from what I remember and was great. I have to say Robert Pattinson undetectable as the Heron. Like mm. I, if you did not tell me that I never would have guessed that in a million years, he's just like, Maybe we give him. We should give him an Oscar because he's just totally doing a whole other voice. I did not know he was capable of. Um, it's pretty great. 
I mean, vo- <laughs> look, a voice acting category, it's there for the taking. It we is. I don't know why we haven't been doing it. Um, Motion capture think- slash voice acting. What is the Sorry. what do you think the role of the heron is supposed to be? It, he's in the title. Like uh, he feels like a classic trickster figure to yeah. me, right? Like like a Loki or like a coyote or one of those. Um, I don't know if there's any kind of Japanese mythology that has that, but um the the joke about, you know, a heron once told me that all herons are liars, right? That's that's a very familiar <laughs> kind of structure uh to a joke. Um and felt like we were playing with the trickster there um i loved when uh they fixed his beak i thought that was i mean we didn't talk about the arrow was really the arrow was super cool but the yeah. the mm-hmm. fixing of the beak um and like immediately turns and attacks him and then when he realizes it sticks out just a little bit he's like actually can we uh yeah so um <laughs> really, really like a super fun character it, i think i was a little disappointed that the heron disappeared for a really long time um and welcomed it back when the time came but I, I was trying to give a it. shout out to the 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 foodie murder parrot parakeets. Like they made me so mm. happy. Like to like the fact that they're just <laughs> constantly trying to angle for their next meal. And then we see <laughs> their society has like chefs and they're creating these elaborate feasts. And mm. <laughs> it just cracked me up so much. I didn't know that that was a thing that I needed. Uh, and then and then the heron has this like janky disguise trying to look like one of them. <laughs> yeah, googly eyes. It's so good. Yeah. And I, I remember the thing I was going to say, because you mentioned the, the title, which is now The Boy and the Heron, but for a long time, I had a different title, uh, which was How Do You Live, which is the title of apparently a, a well-known book in, in Japan. I don't know exactly how old it is, but it was... 1937 is when it was published. Okay, thank you. I actually <laughs> attempted to read it this week. I can say more about that <laughs> in a minute, but continue. Okay. Well, so it, it's the book that... He, um, Mojito was given as like your a gift from his mom or his mom had it uh, and he reads it and he cries. And apparently uh, that was the extent of which to which Miyazaki always wanted to use it in this, but he wanted to call it that uh, he wanted to call it. How do you live? And I guess other people at studio Ghibli were like, so it's not an adaptation of the book. He's like, no, it's just that the book is like a thing that is used in the movie. And they're like, won't people think this is going to tell the story that's in the book? And he's like, I don't care. I'm Miyazaki. I do whatever I want. Uh, And so however those conversations unfolded, it eventually has now, at least in America, come out as the boy and the heron. I'm not sure what the Japanese title translates to uh, directly, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you read the book. I was because uh, uh, I, I have nothing further to say about it. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. So, yeah, I only got through a, about a third of it. And I was like, there are no birds in this. Like, what is happening? Because I actually didn't know I did what you just said. I didn't know that it's like an inspiration because the, the I would I would recommend it. I, I plan on finishing it. Um, uh, so the forward is by Neil Gaiman in the. Um, English translation and in it he sort of explains that Miyazaki always said this was like his favorite childhood book it's like a comfort book Um, and the setup of it is there's a little boy named Copper and he's sort of like named after Copernicus and so there's all these physics I was like this is like Oppenheimer Jr. I love this Like, like it's all this discussion of physics and like the relations of production and economics it's very academic um, because it's sort of like there's a little boy and his uncle and they write letters back and forth to each other. And his uncle is like, it's some kind of academic. Um, 
And so their conversations are sort of about like he tries to make little boy tries to make little like tries to make um his own scientific discoveries and he reports back and then the uncle writes back being like, well, actually, like here, this is the theory that you're at. You've discovered on your own. Like, and it has very much a feel of passing on knowledge to a future generation. And then mm. in between, at least so far in between the, these like letters are stories about the, the main character coppers uh, childhood. So it's like the kids getting bullied at school and like, what do they what do they do about it? And like it's a it feels like it's a coming of age story. And so I went into this movie being like, well, maybe this is Miyazaki's like interpretation of these stories, and the birds are metaphors mm. for like his friends from school. And <laughs> all these elaborate <laughs> theories about how I could map what I had read, which granted was incomplete, and that's on me. Um, onto this movie, and I was like, no, this is like none of the names are even the same. <laughs> and so when it gets to the moment where he pulls the book and it says, "How do you live?" on the cover and it's written by his mm -hmm. mother. Right. Um, yeah. Well, there's a note written in the mother. I think it was like her intent yeah. was to give it to him okay. when he was older. Okay. So I think it's like, it's a reference to the role that this book has played in Miyazaki's life and how mm -hmm. he sees it as like a book that of like adults mentoring children mm -hmm. and sort of like helping them figure out how to come of age. That's at least, you know, again, this is, I'm operating on incomplete information, <laughs> but um yeah, it was it was really beautiful. I really liked it. I can see I could see how Miyazaki would be like it would be like a foundational text for him um, in a lot of ways. And so. So, yeah, I was just confused because I was like, at what point does this kick into really surreal Miyazaki gear? <laughs> like, and there are a bunch of birds that show up um, <laughs> and that didn't happen. So. Um, so, yeah, so it's nice. To, I can see why they had him change the title, but also that moment if you have that reference for the meaning and apparently this it's not just Miyazaki like this book is so beloved in Japanese culture that like it's a common thing with like the kids to read or something like that so I feel like that being a reference is a very meaningful one when he pulls it out of the box and it's like what his mother wanted to, to give him right um it kind of makes make because we actually don't learn a lot about his mother that's really the main thing the main mm. connection we have to her so um but yeah I'm glad I got to talk about that because I was like, I really tried to read this book before I saw the movie. <laughs> nice. And then I just should have realized that there were too many other things going on. And, um, then, you, and then it was one too many books and you went mad. Right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, okay. We got to do Oscars watch because I do want to wrap up. So now we're going to talk it. about the Oscars prospects that this film might have. So the main question here, I think, is oh. <laughs> I don't right, think I you've ever to... remembered the second part of that song any episode nope. I've been nope. on, and it cracks me <laughs> yep. up every time because it it, it comes always it always so works. strong. <laughs> well, so last time I remembered to to I figured out if you click it again, it fades out on its own. Oh, interesting. Figured, mm. Yeah. Uh, it, as long as you don't click the X like I often do and then just totally delete the whole thing, um, <laughs> which is normally what happens. Uh, so I did that successfully last time we recorded um, and I just forgot about it this time. Anyway, it feels like the main question in terms of Oscars prospects for this movie is like, is this just an animated feature thing? Could it get in elsewhere? How much of a is it? Can we consider it a front runner? Like what are its chances in animated feature? So as mentioned earlier, um, I'm I'm riding the some hope from the Golden Globes uh, after 
mostly being dismissive of the existence of the Golden Globes, but when it does something I like, I'm like, yes, no, good, precursor. We loved it. Uh, I really hope the score can get in to be nominated because I think the score is excellent. I think that uh, Joe uh, Hisashi, um, which I don't think if I said that right, and I apologize, uh, has been has been doing these scores for a while, has never gotten recognition. I don't know if it's possible for him to get a win out of it, but I would love for him to at least get a nomination. Uh, I don't know if it's having like there was a little there was little pockets of hype for a while of like in the same way that like we have all these octogenarian directors coming out. We've got Scorsese looks pretty ensconced at least in a nomination. We've we've talked about Ridley Scott and how he did this year. Um, Michael Mann and Ferrari. You know, people are there's some people liking Ferrari. National National Board of Review liked Ferrari, I guess, but I don't think that's going too far. But it's like, what if Miyazaki could even get into Best Director? Um, but that doesn't seem very likely, given the, how strong the lineup is. So I feel like Score is probably the only other place it could mm. it could pop up. Uh, I'm willing to for more. I would love for it to get more. Um, I don't know. I, I think that it's vying up at the top for animated. I feel like it's pretty close to being locked as a nomination for uh, Best Animated. I think Spider-Verse is going to be hard. I think Spider-Verse is going to be hard to topple. And if Spider-Verse is going to be toppled, would it just be some weird just Disney, like, I don't know, it's Elemental or it's Wish, where like the default of voting for a Disney movie uh, is is somehow, somehow takes over. Um, which I don't think is very likely, but yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's a front runner, but I think it's, it's a nomination close to locked down. I I think that's exactly right. I'm going to say, I think, I think a alarming number of people are really angry that Spider-Verse was half a movie still like, Mm. And and with the second half now getting just removed from the calendar entirely because it's going to be a major delay. Um, I think that does have people grumpy about it. Um, if Spider-Verse beats out Boy and the Heron, it's because of the innovative animation in Spider-Verse and a kind of like fine story. Whereas if Boy and the Heron wins out, it's because it's, traditional and it's kind of as good as 2d animation can be and it's got a really nice story that undercuts both of them in the opposite category in order to pit them against each other because there is some real beauty to spider versus story um and and so on but um you know i do i i agree with pt if this didn't get nominated i think that's an insult um uh but i don't think i'm quite ready to put it at a lock I think it is down to those two, though. Having seen Wish, I don't think Wish is going to be in the conversation. Um, it got uh, in, I think into Golden Globes, though. I think we are more likely to see Leo make a late move because Leo is crazy popular right now, which is over just mind-boggling. You think that gets an over uh, Nimona? Do you want to take Leo over Nimona? No, but Leo <laughs> is much more palatable. Leo had the biggest opening of any Netflix animated movie ever and is oh, wow. pretty much gotten universally praised. Um, and it is c- 
created by Triumph the Insult Comic Dog uh, is the director, writer, and uh, the songwriter for that. Uh, of course, his name is Robert Schmeigel, and he's done a lot more. But just picture Insult the Comic Dog, Triumph. Sorry, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog uh, directing a, a film. But I, I think PT called it right, though, about these ones. I, I, I'm, I would put. I, I think. Uh, Across the Spider-Verse, the original already has an Oscar. We've got a third one. I would, if I were PricewaterhouseCooper, because we'll pretend that's how it works, I would give it over to the boy <laughs> and the heron right now. It's a sequel that normally doesn't do that well in this category in terms of nominations and wins. Uh, that sequels are less likely to get nominated, but if they do get in, they're less likely to win. So I feel like because it's a sequel, the first one already won one. And because of the part two factor or, you know, that Greg mentioned that I feel like makes it so that it will get into the category, but might not necessarily win. Um, And my counterpoint is Pinocchio, Guillermo Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I think this branch does have an appetite for something that's popular, but also on the kind of artsier, more poetic side. And so... For that reason, I think Boy and the Heron has an edge. Maybe. The the thing I'll push back on that, though, is Guillermo del Toro spent a lot of time being like, what's up, everybody? I'm Guillermo That's del true. Toro. Don't you love me? Don't you want to give me an Oscar? I want to talk about my animators. I want to talk about stop mm. motion. Whereas Hayao Miyazaki is like, I'm never speaking right. to you. I'm He's never coming to America. Yeah. I have no desire to care or even uh, acknowledge your existence in Hollywood. That's fair. So... And I think but, the, narr- the narrative of this, he's just kidding. He's not actually retiring. I think that hurts this film's chances yeah. of yeah. at least winning. Right. Where if it's like, this is our last chance to give him another Oscar, then it makes that push. But I feel like if that narrative has largely diffused, um, <laughs> mostly by Studio Ghibli, I think being like, oh, we actually just talked to him and he's talking about another movie. And it's like, no, <laughs> don't you know anything about Oscar's campaign? <laughs> um, but yeah, maybe they don't care. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Um, uh- so, I mean, it, it would only be his uh, second Academy Award for one of his movies, which is kind of wild. It, it It is a good reminder to me how relatively recent animated feature is. I sometimes forget when you start looking at those 90s movies of like, how come that one didn't win best animated yeah. features? Like, because that didn't exist. Like, that was not a category. So uh, it was it was maybe maybe kind of sort of hoping to get into um, international or, or foreign language, whatever it was called back then. Um, but uh, yeah, there's only been uh, one, two, three, uh, four, wait, yes. One, two, three, four, uh, Boy in the Heron will be the fifth Miyazaki directed movie since there was a best animated feature. Mm. Um, three of the other four were nominated. Uh, Ponyo didn't make the cut. Ponyo did not get nominated the year it came out. Um, but uh, The Wind it's Rises. It's one of my least favorite. Oh, okay. I mean, I still like it. But that's my kids' favorite. Is that the favorite. goldfish one? Is that the fish becomes yes, a girl? Yes, it's a little mermaid, okay. basically, but with the fish. Yeah, yeah fish I remember yeah. not being that enticed by that one. Um, but The Wind Rises and Howl's Moving Castle were both nominated in Spirit Away. Spirited Away won animated feature. So, again, not do, but is it like despite losing the this is the last movie um which i i think i'm i'm not saying that that it's wrong but just in the interest of content i'm gonna disagree slightly and say if they really leaned on and this is his last movie like wouldn't you feel bad if you didn't give him 
another Oscar for his last movie, that might like turn people off in a way that like the old guy being like, I'm still going, whatever. Might They might be like, oh yeah, he's great. Like in this movie's really good. I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll, we like this one. We'll give it to him. So, um, it, you know, it, it loses a narrative, but I think that it might not turn off voters necessarily. Uh, and, and I think it's possible they might say, hey, look at his filmography. Doesn't he deserve to have won twice instead of just the once? I like that spin. Especially, sorry, especially if Spider-Verse, there's going to be a third one and they could say in a Return of the King move, oh, mm-hmm. well, let's make sure they hit the landing. And then Spider-Verse would also have two and they'd both have two and everyone's happy. Everyone goes home happy. the people who worked on Wish and Elemental <laughs> and Nimona and Suzumi. Super Mario Brothers. Oh yeah, Suzumi got a Golden Globe nomination, Um, which I haven't seen. I haven't seen that yet, Uh, but I heard it's good. All right. Well, thank you both for indulging uh, my love of Miyazaki and my nerdery interest. Just like naming other movies, I feel like I spent half this episode just naming other (laughs) Miyazaki movies. Uh, So thank you, thank you for the the great breakdown and conversation, Greg. Where can folks find you on the internet? People can find me on the internet at ioncanon.com or on Instagram, threads, or letterboxed, all at ioncanon, E-Y-E-O-N-C-A-N-O-N. That's where you find me. Thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure. I think we just hit our sixth hour of podcasting together in the last five days. So, uh, no, that's not right. Fifth, I just can't do the math. Uh, That's a lot. Uh, But it was a, a pleasure to talk about this. MPT, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me uh, very rarely active on Instagram and threads at PT McNiff. Uh, and you can also find me on Letterboxd, which I'm trying to at least get into a position where maybe 2024 is the year I actually use Letterboxd. Uh, I did go You're in right. and mark that I watched every movie I watched during this year, but I didn't like log it. So anyway, um, at PT McNiff there as well. And don't forget... You can follow the show uh, at the long take review on both Instagram and threads. Or if you want to contact us uh, via email, you can email us the long take review at gmail.com. Great. And you can find me at Subchakchai, S O P C H O C K C H A I on Instagram and threads and Qui Gon Jen on Letterboxd. I don't know what else is there to say. Miyazaki's great. Great movie. Master Go see it. Big screen. You can follow The Long Take on Substack at thelongtake.substack.com. Subscribe for free to receive reviews of films with Oscar buzz, as well as new films and series from pop franchises like Star Wars and Marvel.